and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Heather Sarantis, Environmental Health Consultant to Breast Cancer Action, and I will be your guest host for today. In 1995, the Centers for Disease Control and their partner Kaiser Permanente Healthcare launched a revolutionary new field of study of adverse childhood experiences, also called ACEs. The early studies explored ways that children who faced adversity, such as physical or emotional abuse or neglect at home, were at higher lifelong risk for a range of problems, including cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, depression, substance abuse, and early death. As the field grew, new understanding was gained on how chronic toxic stress in childhood can affect a person over the course of their lifetime. It also grew to recognize that ACEs happen not just at the individual or family level, They also happen at the community level, for example, community violence and a range of impacts from systemic racism. Since 2017, Breast Cancer Action has been partnering with child health and development studies to better understand what the connection might be between ACEs and breast cancer risk, especially risk for the highly aggressive forms of breast cancer that African-American women disproportionately experience. Our project, called Linking Neighborhood and Individual ACEs to Breast Cancer, explores new ways to understand how not just our personal experiences, but also how where we live might affect breast cancer risk. My podcast guest for today is Dr. Barbara Cohn, Director of Child Health and Development Studies at Public Health Institute. She's here to talk about the connection between ACEs and breast cancer and the research project we're working on. Dr. Cohn is uniquely qualified to co-lead this project through her background in public health, city and regional planning, and epidemiology. She's led the child health and development studies for more than 20 years and has contributed to truly significant findings linking environmental exposures, specifically the pesticide DDT, to breast cancer. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So first, in order to talk about uh, any of your work, can you explain what Child Health and Development Studies is and the unique data set that you are working with? Yes. Uh, For about 60 years, we've been following 20,000 pregnancies that occurred between 1959 and 1967. All these pregnancies were originally cared for by the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, beginning in 1959. It was a perfect place to follow pregnancies from their very beginning recognition through delivery. And then in addition, children were followed in various subgroups at ages five, at ages nine to 11, and in adolescence. And now, 60 years later, this has become a very large and now three and almost four generation study of the very earliest causes or predictors of adverse health over the life course. This is a very special uh, study population. It is one of the largest assemblies of data on African-Americans because the cohort consisted of approximately 22% African-Americans who were all employed and working and insured. And it allows us to look 
at differences in risk over the life course and what might cause those differences. Before we dive into ACEs, I think it's important to give our listeners a sense of what you've already been able to learn about breast cancer from this incredible data set. Can you explain what you discovered about breast cancer risk and DDT exposure? Sure. Um, first, a little more about the resource. When the women agreed to be in our study, they also agreed to donate a blood specimen during their pregnancies. So that blood specimen carries inside it a library of all of the exposures the women were exposed to during their pregnancies. And so because we believe that breast cancer can develop very early in life and is influenced by the events of pregnancy, including a woman's hormones and other exposures that may happen during that time, we've been able to analyze that blood for what was in it in relation to the future risk of breast cancer, both in the mother's generation and in the daughter's generation, and more recently for breast cancer risk factors in the granddaughter's generation. This study is very unique. It wasn't originally planned to study breast cancer. And the people who designed the study probably didn't realize how important this resource would be. Internationally, it's one of the only longest-term three-generation studies of cancer and breast cancer that exists. And now because we know the breast may be more vulnerable during important periods like time in utero for the, the child, pregnancy for the mother... And perhaps even as the idea of the next generation as the egg or as the stem cells that will make sperm to make the grandchildren may also be a vulnerable period for the induction of increased risk for cancer. So we have a very special opportunity here. So in the 1960s, there were many different things that were going on. Um, many different pharmaceuticals were being prescribed to pregnant women without um, understanding that that may be risky. But in addition, in the environment were lots and lots of new chemicals that were considered to be ways in which we could improve the way we lived. One of them was DDT. It was used extremely heavily in the United States, but also worldwide in the 50s and 60s, probably peaking just about the time that our women entered our study as pregnant women. And so we recognized early on that we had the opportunity to look at the levels of DDT in the blood of these women. They were not agricultural workers or they were not occupationally exposed necessarily. They were just people who lived in the, in the Bay Area, largely in Oakland and Berkeley, where um, Kaiser served their population. Some uh, expansion to Contra Costa County occurred a little bit later in the cohort. And so what we found were very high levels of many of these legacy pesticides, um, DDT being one of them, and one that was most commonly used, could be found in the samples of all of the pregnant women. But there were variations in the amounts and the types of DDTs that were in each of these women's samples. And so we received funding from the California, well, first from the National Institute of Health, from the National Cancer Institute, to look at DDT in mother's breast cancer, and then later from the California Breast Cancer Research Program to look at the relationship between DDT and daughter's breast cancer, in other words, in utero exposures. And we've also expanded this to look at some other chemicals. And what we found is we, we found that the timing of exposure really mattered, that the mothers who were exposed prior to puberty could be shown to have a higher risk of breast cancer in relation to their levels of DDT in their blood. 
And we also found that their daughters, when exposed to in utero, also had an increased risk of breast cancer if they had higher levels of some of the DDT compounds in their blood. We expanded these studies to include other cancers like testis cancer and other chemicals like polychlorinated biphenyls, which are industrial chemicals, and also the more modern perfluorinated compounds that are found in things like Teflon and Gore-Tex that we're, you're hearing more about were also around in the 50s and 60s. And we've also looked at those in relation to uh, daughter's breast cancer. So we're a very unusual study in that we could look at internal dose of toxics like these DDTs and other chemicals and subsequent risk of cancer where we're not asking people to remember what they stored under their sink or what they did 40 years ago. And not only that, we can cover very important critical windows of susceptibility in utero, in childhood, and for women in pregnancy. So um, this has been a, a long journey and um, an interesting one because environmental causes of cancer have not always been the number one area of maximum interest in the cancer research community. Much more work had been done on behaviors that are correlated with cancer risk, like smoking and alcohol use, and um, also obesity to the extent to which it is in someone's control. So now we're also looking at the way in which these chemicals may serve also to be obesogens, meaning that there are potentially environmental causes of obesity that are currently contributing to the known patterns of breast cancer and other cancers that we see in the population. So that's what we've been doing. And now we've expanded this to try to understand the link between some of these chemical exposures and childhood experiences, especially the ones that are considered to be adverse and that influence populations that have different patterns of risk of breast cancer. That's great. It's such an incredible opportunity to have this kind of resource to dive into these big questions. I mean, breast cancer is a really complex disease. And to be able to enter the research questions through a number of different angles using such a substantial data set is just a very rare opportunity, as you described. So now I want to move us towards the study that we're working on together. Um, before we dive in, could you give a good explanation of adverse childhood experiences um, for a general audience explaining what they are, um, some key examples of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs that researchers measure, and what do we know in general about ACEs and their impact on people's well-being? Well, as you noted in your introduction, the research community's interest in these, especially with respect to long-term outcomes like cancer, is really new. And anytime a topic like that is new, it takes a while to develop a strong research portfolio that tells us for certain that we know what we've got. And here's what we do know. Most of the, the ACEs that people have looked at are very extreme experiences that people have. The death of parents, being placed in foster care, terrible disasters like famine, and these characteristics are often reasonably rare or else the populations to, in which they happen are hard to follow for a really long period. And so most of the studies on ACEs have indicated, have looked at 
these sorts of very strong, stressful experiences. Then, in addition, the idea of adversity has been extended to the circumstances of childhood, living in poverty, being hungry, not having access to basic needs, and then also to children who have experienced emotional abuse. Then, in addition, that circle is expanded to talk about some of the things that people have decided probably are adverse in some cases, but maybe not in others, like only having a single parent or being in a family of divorce where things are unsettled. Now, the literature also talks very clearly about the need to, to at the same time, talk about opportunities and access to coping strategies. A single parent, for example, who has other resources is very different from a single parent who is struggling and has no childcare, for example. And so it's, it's been difficult to really tease this all out and to understand exactly what's going on. And so with respect to cancer, there have been some, a few, broad studies that show that individuals who report growing up in the kinds of circumstances that we just discussed have a higher risk of cancer. They also tend to have a higher risk of a number of illnesses and, and problems that can be correlated to cancer, including the abuse of alcohol and drugs, including certain types of body mass, you know, being higher weight, but including the propensity to try to self-medicate or, or abuse substances that are, are risky, like including smoking, even in the face of uh, warnings not to smoke. And so the literature basically consists mostly of this kind of data. So when you fast forward this to this period now, what we are now becoming more interested in, or what, or what you already described, Heather, are these contextual characteristics that aren't so easy to measure as what you drink or what you eat, what your diet is, whether you smoked, whether you take risks personally, but also things that you can't control. Um, are you um, victimized? Do you live in a high crime neighborhood? Are you always worried and stressed over where your next paycheck is going to come from or whether you're going to get the food you need to eat? And is that the kind of environment that you grow up in as a child? And so those environmental contexts, which are called neighborhood contexts, have now become of expanded interest to researchers in this field, not just for cancer research, but also for research on other health outcomes like diabetes. So going back to your unique data set, Barbara, and knowing that you wanted to explore the connection between breast cancer and adverse childhood experiences, how did you begin? The first thing that we had was the location and residence history, both of the place of birth of the children in our study, but also where they lived during their childhood, because we've been making an attempt to follow these individuals over a long period, and we have had permission to link their addresses, and their addresses are linked to characteristics of their neighborhoods. And in the end, because we also have been doing research on breast cancer, we know who got sick. And we also have done some other studies in the interim for, on breast cancer risk factors. For example, in one subset, in a group of adolescents, we know all about the timing 
that a woman reports for when she first got her menstrual period, which is a very important marker of hormonal exposures that is related to breast cancer risk. And we've collected mammograms from a group of individuals, women in our study population, and the daughters in our study population when they were in midlife in their 50s. And the density of their breasts is also a strong breast cancer risk factor. So we realized that we could actually link the residence history of these individuals to these breast cancer outcomes to see whether where you live matters. Not only just where you live, like north, south, east, or west, but also what was a characteristic of your neighborhood that might explain your risk. And that's where it kind of got hard. So the next question was, what about the neighborhood did we think might matter? There's so many factors that make up what a neighborhood is like. What did you decide to consider? There's a researcher named Nancy Krieger who has devoted her life to understanding income inequality and health. And she has noticed that the, the degree of segregation in a neighborhood is very strongly correlated to the environmental risks that a neighborhood experiences. And by environmental risks here, we mean chemicals, pollution, toxics. It's actually really interesting. So it's not just whether it is a predominantly uh, white or black neighborhood, but it is whether it is whether it is a predominantly white or black neighborhood, because it looks like, regardless of income, neighborhoods that are highly segregated are neighborhoods that may be closest to pollution. You can probably think of some of these neighborhoods if you imagine them in your mind. So how do you do this kind of research? So what we've planned to do is, it's really a lot of work, is code the address history of all of these families that we are interested in, the women who received a diagnosis of breast cancer, the women for whom we have data on their timing, their age at which they've got their first menstrual period, and the women for whom we have information on breast density and comparison groups for where their mother lived when they were born, because that's their prenatal exposure neighborhood, and then where they lived when they were kids as for up to as long as we can get, hopefully to adolescence, because we know that the breast is developing during this entire period from in utero through adolescence, that it's a very important critical period for the development of the breast. And once we've coded all the addresses, we will link all those addresses to census data for each of the appropriate years over the 40-year period of this study. And we'll look at an index of segregation. We'll use race as one of the ways we think about segregation, but we will use income as another way that we look at segregation. And we'll look at education as another way that we look at segregation. So those three indices of segregation are going to be used to try to predict whether or not women have who live in those neighborhoods that are highly segregated have increased risk of breast cancer itself, early onset of menarche, or increased breast density in midlife. Why are these the risk factors that you chose? So early age of menarche is both a risk factor for breast cancer, but it is also linked to a more aggressive form of breast cancer 
called ER negative, estrogen negative breast cancer. And these breast cancers, estrogen negative breast cancer, is more prevalent among African-Americans who have higher mortality rates from breast cancer than non-African-American. We also chose greater breast density in midlife because it's a really strong risk factor for breast cancer. It's related to very more aggressive disease, and it's also more prevalent in African-Americans. And then we chose the incidence of breast cancer before the age of 55, which also is known to be more aggressive, more common in African-Americans. And so these are the three breast cancer-related outcomes we're going to study in relation to neighborhood segregation. Can you explain how these risk factors connect to adverse childhood experiences? Our ACE, in this case, the primary thing we're going to look at is neighborhood. And we did it for a couple of important reasons. One is, if we can locate sort of pockets of characteristics of neighborhoods where children are being placed at risk for future breast cancer, maybe those are the places we, should, we could concentrate on efforts both to do proper early screening and maybe change the reasons for the risk. And I know that that sounds difficult to do, but at least it would allow us to zero in on those physical places because there may be other neighborhoods that share characteristics like the ones we are studying that are related to risk. That's one reason why we chose neighborhoods. However, we decided not to confine our study only to neighborhoods because we also have individual risk factors. We know how the mother's pregnancies went. We know about the birth weight of their children. We have a massive uh, archive of data on the growth and development of the daughters in these study populations. So we can look at the individual characteristics that are also linked to the neighborhood characteristics to see whether it might be possible to intervene or change the outcome of risk by changing something else that happened in childhood. I wanted to pull out uh, just a really specific uh, piece of work that I know that you did that kind of narrates some of the um, the meaning behind what you're doing. And, and that was, you know, you mentioned looking at breast density as a risk factor for breast cancer. And I think people often talk about that as if it was this thing, like your breasts are like a certain kind of density and that's what it is. But we actually know that breast density can change in response to different things that happen. And you did some research looking at parental death before the age of 21 and whether the stress of that actually could impact breast density and then in turn breast cancer risk later in life. Could you just explain, it's just, you know, one one thread of this whole big picture you've spelled out for us, but I, it, it'll just ground us in like, how do these these really complex risk factors actually play off of each other and change over time? And what is creating those changes? This is truly is a very fascinating, interesting area. So um, like I said before, there are kind of two ways to think about this. You can think of the individuals in our study and what happened to each individual, or you can think of the context in which they live. The ability to do both is a very strong research opportunity in our cohort, as I just mentioned. And we started this in part um, in response to this question of what do we already know about these families 
that where we could use a very classic definition of adversity that had been used before in the literature um, and subsequent breast cancer risk. So these are unpublished findings. We haven't written them up yet, but we will. We looked at the loss of both parents in childhood. Remember, we followed 20,000 births over the course of seven years. And yes, it's not a common event for someone to lose both of their parents. And there were 192 women in our cohort that lost only their mother before the age of 18, I believe it was. And there were 463 who lost only their father. Fathers are older and they die younger. And there were 31 women who lost both of their parents before the age, it was 21, excuse me, before the age of 21. And so we were wondering whether we had enough information to um, look at the breast cancer risk in these 31 women compared to the roughly 10,000 other women that we had on the file. So it's really important for people to understand this. This sounds like a small sample size, and if it, it is if you're looking for a very small risk difference. But if there's a large risk difference, you will have the ability to see it. So we decided it you know, wasn't that risky. All we did, had to do was run this on the computer as opposed to spend a lot of money and do interviews because we already knew about these things because we've been following the cohort for mortality that we knew about the parents. It's not like we had to ask people about their mother and father's status, you know, vital status, whether they were alive or dead and what time, how old they were when they were died. They died. We knew about it. And we already knew about the breast cancer experience of, of our cohort. So here's what we found. Among those women who had lost both parents before the age of 21, there was a four and a half fold increased risk of breast cancer. And this is a statistically significant finding, meaning there's only one chance in a hundred that this didn't really happen the way we think. And moreover, for late stage disease in those daughters, which means to be diagnosed at a very serious point where the disease has already spread beyond the breast, there was an 8.5-fold increase in risk for late-stage disease for breast cancer. With Again, it was statistically significant, meaning only a 4 in 100 chance that, that we just saw this by chance and wasn't really there. And for a particular form of breast cancer, which is extremely aggressive, which is called HER2-positive breast cancer, it's a special test for the receptors on the cancer cells. HER2-positive breast cancer had a 24.5-fold increase in risk among women who lost both of their parents. And that's for cancer that, breast cancer itself. And then for the subset that we had information on for breast density, we were able also to look at that as well. And the mean dense area of the woman's breast, daughter's breast, in relation to the loss of the mom, was significantly greater, uh, almost uh, twice as dense in the daughters whose mothers, who, where both mothers had died. And this actually surprised us that this was so strong. 
Yeah, well, when we started um, talking about ACEs and breast cancer, you were clear that there's still a lot to be learned about that particular connection. But I think this example of the changes in breast density in response to parental death just really demonstrates that this is a really important topic that needs a lot more investigation and a lot more exploration to understand where are the places that we can actually intervene through policy, through health education, that might actually reduce women's breast cancer risk. And I think that this research project, it's very complex. I'm very impressed with the level of analysis that's required to make meaning out of this stuff. But I think it might give us some real information about why are women in general um, being diagnosed with breast cancer, but why in particular are these really aggressive forms of breast cancer being found in African-American women? And how does that relate to systemic and historical racism that really disadvantages uh, people over time? I totally agree with you. I think that this um, area of inquiry up until now has focused heavily on genetic factors. That doesn't mean there aren't any, but we haven't found an extensive smoking gun for almost any of the cancers that have different patterns in African-Americans compared to others. I truly believe that it's time to extend the discussion beyond genetic susceptibility, but to the other side of the equation, people often talk about gene by environment interaction to see whether the E part, the environment part, may be at least as important as the genetic part, and whether if in the end it might be more important and in our control, not just our personal control, like changing the way we eat or where we live, but via the kinds of societal changes where people could make a decision about how much pollution is acceptable or whether to build a housing project in an area where there may be toxic waste or whether to clean one up or whether to control emissions in a neighborhood that is more exposed than another neighborhood. And so we need to do this. And it is an equity issue. It is an ethical issue. It is a Black Lives Matter issue that extends beyond the question of um, police violence, because there are other kinds of violence that are being done to um, communities that have um, fewer uh, resources, be those resources economic or um, power-related resources in, in, in making decisions about their lives. Well, so when this study is done, Breast Cancer Action is committed to sharing the results out to the world and translating them into ideas for policy or interventions that we could pursue based on this research. What is your hope in terms of what the findings might be able to provide for opportunities to reduce breast cancer risk? That's a good question. I think what we always were hoping, and I still am hoping, is that if we can find the characteristics of neighborhoods that are markers of risk, we can, we can find those neighborhoods. They're still out there. Um, neighborhoods change all the time, but we can find neighborhoods that have characteristics that are, that are like the ones we show are related to excess risk. And then we can try to understand what about them could be altered to improve the future lives of the children and the families that live there. Mm -hmm. There are lots of options. 
Uh, one of them is developing an advocacy opportunity in those neighborhoods to advocate for um, more agency, a cleaner environment, fewer toxics, even if we can't pin down the exact exposure that is the right one. It is now these days hard to argue against cleaner air because of other reasons, because of asthma, because of other health outcomes and quality of life. And breast cancer then becomes added, perhaps, to the concerns of a particular neighborhood. That's one of the potential outcomes of the project. The other, and it's a really important one, is that once we do understand the characteristics and the places that have contributed to risk that maybe are independent and over and above the individual data that we have on risk, we can try to find out what it was about those environments or what it is about those environments that is creating risk. It's really important to be able to do that in order to protect the future generation. So understanding the cause, which is a, sort of a more esoteric, scientific uh, you know, uh, goal, isn't really that esoteric if you stop and think about the fact that knowing the cause also gives us an opportunity to prevent the bad outcomes that we want to prevent. Well, that is definitely the goal. We're working on it. Yes. Because it's more than just treatment. We have to do it, have to treat the disease. I'm a cancer widow. I'm, I'm not someone who doesn't think we need, you know, better treatment. But we just have to make sure that we're also going after the cause of this disease to eliminate the number of families that have to deal with it. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really interesting and complex conversation, and I'm really looking forward to the results, as I'm sure you are too, and being able to translate them out into the world. Breast cancer risk is complex. The disease is a result of interacting genetics, lifestyle, and environmental factors that include chemical exposures and the social environment. And the racial disparities in breast cancer, especially breast cancer mortality for African-American women, are stark. Anything we can discover about how to reverse or undo the social, economic, and health inequities that may be contributing to breast cancer risk must be a priority. There is likely no silver bullet to ending the breast cancer crisis, but projects like the Linking Neighborhood and Individual Aces to Breast Cancer may provide important information about where some of the most at-risk communities are and help identify some of the priorities of what we might do to stop the disease. As the research project is finalized, Breast Cancer Action looks forward to turning this new understanding into actions that help prevent breast cancer. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.